Hello and welcome to the New Lines podcast. I'm Lydia Wilson and this is a podcast where we delve into some of the biggest ideas, events and personalities in the Middle East and beyond. And today we're delving into what is perhaps the Middle East's single biggest idea and its most important ongoing event, the city. Today, more than half of all humans live in cities, but the first people ever to do so were people in the Middle East. Cities like Byblos in Lebanon and Jericho in Palestine have been continuously inhabited for 5,000 years at least. The city's story has not stopped in all these many years. The 20th century saw a massive acceleration in urbanisation, both in the Middle East and the rest of the world. Those trends are set to continue. By 2050, more than two-thirds of the global population will be living in cities. In the Middle East, where average urbanisation rates already exceed that, the number will be even higher. Today, I'm joined by Yasser El-Shastawi and Mona Fawaz to discuss the unique challenges and opportunities brought by this new chapter in a very old story. Yasser is an award-winning scholar of urban development, an adjunct professor of architecture at Columbia University, and a non-resident fellow at the Arab Gulf States Institute in DC. The Guardian called his blog, Dubaiization, one of the notable city blogs in the world. Mona is a professor of urban studies and planning at the American University of Beirut, where she recently co-founded the Beirut Urban Lab. She has worked as a consultant and has been a strong advocate of more inclusive, just and viable cities. Mona, Yasser, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having us. Hi, Lydia. Thank you for the introduction and for having us as well. <laughs> Looking forward to the conversation. Now, Yasser, I hoped you could start us off by telling us a little bit more about Dubaiization. You coined the term in 2004 but it continues to be relevant and influential in many city planning circles. Could you explain what you mean by it? Yeah, at that time, as you note, in 2004, uh, I was living in, uh, in the UAE in Dubai and I was teaching at UAE University. And uh, there were a number of projects that were coming on board at the time in Dubai, uh, the Palm Island, the Burj Al Arab, Internet City and so on. And uh, they were quite unique and uh, uh, quite spectacular. And uh, cities in the Arab world, traditional cities such as Cairo, where I am from, uh, were uh, sort of looking at Dubai and uh, looking at their own urban conditions, which were quite deteriorating at the time. And uh, they felt that they wanted to sort of uh, copy or mimic what was going on there. So that was uh, one particular aspect. The other one was that uh, cities in the Gulf, uh, feeling uh, their uh, power and their influence, um, wanted to export their particular brand of urbanism to other parts in the region. Uh, cities such as Cairo, uh, in uh, Rabat in Morocco, and Tunisia, and elsewhere. So uh, there were these uh, multiple uh, modes of influence, whether the, the, it was instigated by actors within the respective cities or by direct uh, influence from the Gulf region and in particular Dubai. So uh, Dubaization refers to that uh, particular mode of influence, that uh, uh, impact that uh, Dubai uh, 
began to have early in the uh, 20th century, uh, early in 2004, and then continuing uh, till the present day. And uh, if you uh, look at the literature, you find that the term Dubaization is now being used uh, and Dubai Dubaification even, uh, even when it's not related to Dubai at all, but it depicts a particular mode of development that uh, relies on a sort of tabula rasa approach, uh, a mode of development that negates uh, any con context and uh, views any development as something that is uh, exclusive and disregards uh, the urban context. Any context at all? Well, Mona, this is very different to um, your research and life context, which is in Beirut, a very, very different sort of city. Unlike Dubai, which only became really as prominent as it is today over the last few decades, Beirut has been a major city since it was founded by the Phoenicians. So I wondered if you had any thoughts about Dubaization in terms of Beirut. Has the Dubai model been influential in Lebanon at all? Of course, of course. Uh, I mean, if we go back to the post-Civil War reconstruction of Beirut in 1990, and we look at the signature project of Beirut's historic core, the uh, notorious Solidaire project, uh, the idea of uh, doing actually a tabula rasa of a city that's 5,000 years old, of erasing old Ottoman architecture, um, of erasing the multiplicity of ownerships and forms of claiming the city, to put in place a mega project that would become an inspiration that is very much inspired by the way planning is conducted in Dubai. And that then uh, becomes an inspiration to numerous other contacts in the region as pointed by Yasser. We find that uh, the imaginary uh, is very strong. The imaginary of this kind of urbanization is definitely very strong. And of course, it carries with it a very strong political significance because the scale of these mega projects is supposed to embody the success of the rulers, of the decision makers, and the political and economic models that they are bringing uh, on board. So when we look at um, the erasure of Beirut's historic core and the inspiration of a model that is uh, glitzy, built with uh, a lot of glass, uh, unsustainable, um, uh, turns its back to history or claims a tabula rasa when there's so much history here and elsewhere, we find that uh, designers, planners get very excited because they can imagine new projects, but we also find that ultimately they begin to embody a supposed success story that's rarely a success. And of course, we're seeing it today in Beirut and with what happened with Beirut's historic core and beyond with the national economy. Well, just tell me, for all the listeners who aren't so familiar with Beirut, um, can you just um, dig deeper a little bit or explain a little bit um, about what happened in that post-Civil War reconstruction with Solidaire and downtown? Of course. So Beirut's uh, historic core at the end of the Civil War had been for over 12, 13 years, uh, no, man, no, no man land, sorry. Uh, it was an area that was mostly occupied by militiamen and where civilians could not go. And at the end of the Civil War, uh, there was a massive post-disaster reconstruction project, but instead of uh, allowing old property claimants, residents, uh, store owners to come back and recover what they had and rebuild the city, a big real estate uh, company was put in place with uh, very exceptional uh, powers. 
it was championed by then uh, Prime Minister, uh, the late Rafi Hariri, who uh, was very much inspired by Dubai and often brought Dubai as a model. And part of the post-war reconstruction was actually the demolition of a lot of the city's heritage to allow for uh, that imagined uh, modernization, renewal of the city. So we estimate that much more was destroyed of Beirut's historic uh, valuable fabric in the three years in which Solidaire was established than actually throughout the entire Lebanese civil war. And of course, uh, ownership was stripped from old residents because it's a real estate company. People were given shares uh, with very little experience for how to deal with markets. Most people sold what they owned very quickly. And uh, the ownership rapidly went uh, to uh, be more and more controlled today by uh, banks. Uh, the historic course reconstruction was for a short period, a beautiful uh, area with the very posh uh, rehabilitation of some of the remaining historic buildings and many star architects signed very important buildings in the city. Um, unfortunately, it was way above the means of the Lebanese uh, and eventually it became again and remains to date a no man's land, a place where a lot of well-off people basically store their capital. But uh, human activity, urban life is... Uh, clustered in a couple of small areas and the majority of the historic cores remains on hold like a safety deposit box for rich people waiting so that they can uh, make profit out of reselling real estate. Well, that's a really damning statistic that more was destroyed of that historic city in the three years of, of, of reconstruction than in, than in the whole of the conflict of, the, of the, 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 the civil war, the 15 years of the civil war. Um, now, you've explained both of you about this imaginary of modernization, the desire to bring your city into, into some, some form of modernity. Um, but how can you actually do that when the fabric of these cities is so ancient and because of that, um, not so suited to contemporary infrastructure and contemporary populations? How do you meet the needs of a rapidly growing population while you preserve the historic character of these ancient cities like Baghdad, Cairo and Damascus? Yasser, do you have an answer? Yeah, I mean, uh, I want to go back again to that notion of Dubaization, and and because I think it sort of addresses uh, uh, your your question. Um, when we look at developments in Dubai, um, Dubai has has a relatively homogeneous population, and uh, the historical context is not as strong or not as substantive as we find in cities such as Beirut, Damascus, Baghdad, or Cairo. So when these kind of modernizing, the modern projects are being implemented, you're really operating within a context that would allow for these uh, uh, projects to happen and take place. However, when, when you are uh, uh, planning projects in, uh, in, in, in Cairo, for example, or in Rabat or in, in Amman, uh, then we uh, are... Uh, dealing with a context, a social context, a historical context, and a political con political context that is really quite different. And the insertion of these kind of projects, uh, as Mona was saying, for example, Solidaire and so on, within that context can have severe social repercussions. Uh, and just to give an example, in Cairo, uh, there, is, there is a development called Uptown Cairo, 
which is located on uh, the Mokatta mountain, which overlooks the city and is in very close proximity to one of the most uh, notorious and largest informal settlements uh, in Cairo, uh, in Egypt, and uh, perhaps even throughout the world. It's called Manshayet Nasser, which is home to uh, hundreds of thousands of residents. And right next to it is this uh, project, Uptown Cairo, which is being built by uh, an Emirati developer, Amar, uh, and it literally overlooks that uh, particular uh, uh, settlement. So it's these kind of projects uh, that, that are really quite problematic because they are inserted into this uh, 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 urban fabric, substantive urban fabric, and uh, there is a lot of inequity and it enhances inequality among among residents. Um, we see what? that in Abdeli, in Oman, Buregreg in Rabat, and in Lake Tunis as well in Tunisia. But of course, the pressures are changing, aren't they? In a lot of those places you're mentioning, um, there's a real influx of people. And one of those major, um, that, that one, of, one of the major changes in that has been the immense amount of refugees. And Mona, I'm thinking in particular of the half a million or so Syrians who are now in Lebanon. Um, since yeah since since 2011 alone now that creates a lot of pressure um and and a lot of them are living in very impermanent and informal set settlements um or semi-permanent dwellings um and that creates very different pressures could you speak a little bit more about that yes uh so uh just to to think about uh the the kind of urban urbanization that we want i think we need to go back just a little bit towards the economy what kind of an economy do you have what kind of an economy do you set in place and then what kind of livelihood it can sustain i think the reason why so many of our arab cities have huge informal settlements is because our official economies did not allow for spaces for people to grow to own to transform businesses and so the informal or that sector of the economy, which is specialized then in uh, neighborhoods that are developed in violation of urban regulations, become uh, larger and larger because they are neighborhoods where people are able to uh, make their lives, to build projects, economic projects, social projects, despite the fact that they are excluded from uh, the official uh, framework of making the city or making the urban. And those frameworks are very much the areas where refugees have actually tagged along in Lebanon, in Jordan, in Turkey, in uh, and beyond. I'm I know less about Cairo, but I am confident that we're seeing uh, the same scenario. These are areas where people will capitalize on the arrival of refugees because that's a possible source of income. And they will resubdivide an apartment to rent out a room. They will add a floor on top of their building and it's of course not legal it's not always safe people live in very substandard conditions and what we're seeing is those spaces actually really densifying growing uh, becoming uh, more and more difficult to live in uh, because uh, people are building above public spaces people are increasing the number of floors so all the standards of architecture and urban regulations that could have been set in place to protect their privacy and their health are actually being lost. The evidence from Lebanon is that this is where the refugees are absorbed. But it's uh, it's it's not just a transformation of the city. It's actually an acceleration of a process that's been set in place because the economic models that we have adopted 
uh, at least since the early 1990s, are ones that don't allow people to build their livelihoods in the city. And this is where I really want to go back to Yasser's uh, approach to, to, to that inspiration, that imagination of Dubai, which I think is also even larger, which goes back to the concept of the mega project and the intensive financialization of the making of the city in Europe as well and beyond, where uh, these big influxes of capital and these big investors are coming to displace more and more people. In European cities, there's more protections for average citizens, so there's remained fabrics that are more mixed. In our context, we're seeing increasingly more social disparities, divisions, and people thinking into what sadly but aptly Mike Davis has described as superfluous populations, people who have a very hard time being able to force themselves on the economy, make a livelihood, and build uh, their lives with dignity, despite yes, their best efforts. Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, Yasser, do you think there's a parallel there um, in talking about those populations who are excluded from the economy and are living at the peripheries? Do you, do you think there's a parallel with how domestic workers are treated in the Gulf? Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, certainly I agree with Mona when she uh, made the connection to Dubai. Um, when when we look at the model uh, or the way the, the, the sort of economic uh, uh, situation works in 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 the United Arab Emirates and throughout the Gulf. It is predicated on the importation of a labor force from uh, South Asia uh, and uh, from Nepal and and elsewhere, um, who are being brought in large numbers uh, to to uh, cities, and they are relegated to the fringes of uh, the cities that. Uh, uh, where they are involved in the construction of uh, mega projects and so on. Uh, they live in labor camps that are far away and removed from the city itself. They are being bused into the city uh, to uh, work on uh, construction sites. And then once that finishes, they go back and uh, they stay for a very, uh, uh, they stay for a limited time. Once the project is, uh, the projects are completed, they return back to their home countries. So I think uh, to a large extent, when we look at other cities in the region, they are adopting a sort of similar approach when it comes to refugees and so on. Uh, uh, Dubai and the Gulf, they don't have necessarily the refugee problem, but uh, the labor force, the domestic laborers and so on are uh, treated in a very similar way. They are used uh, or brought in simply to fulfill a certain function, and then they are sort of vanished from the urban uh, landscape and uh, left to stay in their respective labor camps, which sometimes are, uh, they live in very dire conditions in, in these uh, places. Um, so there is definitely a very uh, strong parallel there. It's, it's, it's a model, an urban model that is based on exclusion and a fragmentary and fractured urbanity. Well, you've both of you talked very much about inclusivity in your work and and concepts of livability. Um, Mona, what do you think makes a city livable and inclusive? Uh, I think it's governance before anything else, and uh, it's governance and it's economic model. If uh, we look at uh, Beirut and the times in which it was uh, celebrated back in the 1960s, when that time that everyone reminisces about 
we find already the seeds of what we're living today. We find a city where the economic model is predicated on uh, the profit of a few and where land policy, housing policy, uh, and uh, who has the right to vote and how is already based on a privilege. And, um, and, and I think this is where we really need to, to look back. And uh, for me, the, the essential issue is that we've built our profession as planners, we've uh, built our governance as, uh, as citizens around that notion that uh, the city is, uh, that, that, that it's okay that the cities are inevitably inequitable. And that's very, very problematic. In my own research, I challenged the notion of private property being the main way through which we organize the urban. And I ask for the recovery of the commons, for reimagining modes in which we can refer to collectives beyond uh, uh, just citizenship. I think a city like Beirut that has thousands of refugees, of migrant workers, of uh, rural migrants like myself, whose grandpa arrived to Beirut, but who still cannot vote in the city because our political system basically requires me, if I want to have voice, to go back and vote where my grandpa was born. Um, these kinds of systems don't work. And so we need to recover our cities around new notions, dynamic notions of collectivities that are more inclusive, more accepting, and that are reflected in planning tools and in uh, specialities that are not only built around the notion of private property. We've devastated our cities by accepting the principle that we can govern them simply by uh, through property maps and uh, by tagging uh, every piece of land with an owner who can decide what she wants to do with that piece of land. We had commons 150 years ago. Uh, we need to reimagine what the new commons will be like and to work towards them. It's so based around participation and citizenship and inclusion, basically. Mm -hmm. Definitely. It's, uh, it's, it, this is the key. It's to have people who live in a place feel invested in it and capable of changing it. Yeah, but it's sad that we seem to be moving away from that. Um, but Yasser, you've got a very interesting recent book about Riyadh as a model for a livable city. Now, there are a lot of things that on the face of it look quite like Dubai in Riyadh, that modern cityscape and the massive construction projects that are designed to attract global capital. So I think a lot of people might be surprised that you describe it, the way you describe it as a humane and people-centered alternative model of development. And a lot of this, as I understand it, is due to the humanization program of its former mayor, Abdelaziz bin Ayyaf. Is that right? Could you, could you t tell us a bit more about this program, what made it so successful? Yes, absolutely. Um, I, uh, most of my work and my research uh, over the last sort of 20 years has centered on Dubai and uh, Abu Dhabi. And uh, when I returned uh, to the United States three years ago, uh, shortly after I arrived here, I was contacted by uh, the former mayor and uh, who invited me to come to Riyadh and to witness the, some of the projects that were related to that uh, humanization initiative. And uh, I had been to Riyadh in the 70s, uh, back when my father was working there. Uh, so when I went uh, to Riyadh uh, about three years ago, um, I saw that uh, program that was implemented during the tenure 
of the former mayor, which uh, started in 97 and uh, continued up until 2004. Uh, he's, a for, he's a planner uh, educated at the University of Pennsylvania. And when he began his tenureship, he brought back some of these uh, principles of people-centered cities that were uh, quite uh, popular in, in, in the West, uh, 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 looking at the writings of Jean Jacobs, Kevin Lynch, and Jan Gale and others. And basically what that uh, entailed was an introduction of small-scale projects that are implemented at the neighborhood level that focus on public space and making the city uh, accessible to pedestrians and catering to the everyday need of people. Uh, and that involved a number of, of projects and initiatives such as uh, community centers, uh, enhancement of public parks, uh, enhancing sidewalks so people can actually walk on them. Anybody who has been to Riyadh will, will uh, uh, realize that it is really not a city that is particularly pedestrian friendly. So he tried to uh, uh, sort of uh, select a number of, of boulevards and, and, and streets and enhance uh, their uh, walkability and to create a network of walking paths uh, to introduce uh, green spaces to the city and also to accommodate the informal sectors that uh, was quite uh, 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 visible in the city. Uh, there are many vendors selling vegetables and so on. So we introduced uh, projects that would sort of bring these informal vendors together in the form of farmers market and vendor plazas. So, uh, and these would be located within a particular neighborhoods to cater to residents of the city. So uh, these are not necessarily uh, a sort of spectacular projects or uh, that we see in, in other parts like Dubai and, and elsewhere in the Gulf, but they are much smaller uh, at the neighborhood level and cater to the everyday need of people. And I think that's really sort of key. Uh, your question about what makes a city inclusive is that it should accommodate everyday uh, urbanism and everyday. allow for these small scale interventions to, to take place and to cater to the everyday need of people to live on a human scale. Um, but then how do you feel about Mona's recent points about the um, citizenship aspect of all of this? How, how, are, how are they participating in their own society? Do you think that's important as well? Uh, definitely, uh, absolutely. And unfortunately, that's in the region and in the Gulf in particular, it is something that uh, still needs a, a lot of work, to, to put it mildly. <laughs> Uh, uh, projects and uh, initiatives uh, are introduced without really consulting with the stakeholders, citizens and residents of the city. It is done at, at a very small scale uh, for the humanization initiatives. There were these informal discussions with the mayors. People would file complaints and so on. But still, it, it hasn't yet reached the level where there is uh, participation. And also when we look at the uh, large number of expatriates that make up a significant part of the population, they are also not exactly regarded as, as uh, active uh, participants in, in city development, but are looked at mostly as a temporary uh, and transient workforce uh, that will eventually leave. So even though this is changing now and there are some policies that are being implemented to increase 
the years of residency and to introduce perhaps a path to citizenship. But still, there is a lot of work to be done to uh, truly have uh, a, 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 a real sense of citizenship and for people to assert their right to the city. And so both of you, I'd ask, what do you think the biggest barriers to livability in Middle Eastern cities might be? Mona, I'll start with you. I think that we need to think about the big challenges facing us. And uh, we are we have massive changes coming in our way with climate change. Uh, we're not looking at them. We, a lot of us still think that climate change is in the future. Um, the way we used to talk about it in the early 1990s. We are witnessing climate events, but particularly severe in the Arab Gulf, but really everywhere around the region. And these are ushering new challenges and even more inequality. So to me, uh, really, we need to start thinking about changing the way we do things. Um, my dream is, of course, for the big cities in the region to uh, bring in new green new deals in which we can shift to build on our uh, fantastic weather and solar energy potential uh, to create more livable cities in more decentralized inclusive infrastructure systems um, and of course with that to create the structures of governance that are uh, respectful of women, and it's something uh, that's very important because unfortunately across the Arab world, women's rights remain uh, uh, also a big challenge in many ways. And I can see it as a woman and a planner in Beirut of all places, how difficult it is to be heard in the municipality, uh, how difficult it is to be leading projects and to be a participant. Um, we're fighting two fights all the time, and I think it's important to remember. But then, of course, also the challenges of inclusion and of inventing a new form of citizenship, uh, one that is more uh, that that has to move from the way we've thought about cities and modern nation states, uh, really, uh, beyond the, the the urban. So our cities are a laboratory today in which we are exploring new ways of being together of accepting the other. I would say that despite all the challenges, what I see in uh, Beirut, in Cairo, in Amman, is a lot of conviviality as well, and a lot of new ways of inventing the being together. And that's hopeful. So that's how I, I imagine this to be a pathway for the future, but definitely the challenges are huge. The challenges are huge, but it's really nice to have some hope in there that this is an actual opportunity to really explore what citizenship and living together and societies and inclusion might mean. Um, Yasser, what do you think the biggest barriers might be to creating livable cities in the Middle East? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish I would, I, I, I could be as as uh, as as hopeful as that. It it uh, um, particularly looking at what the events that have been occurring within the last two years with regard to the pandemic, which really sort of uh, put cast a strong light on on the significance of public space and inclusion and so on. And uh, many cities throughout the world are recasting their mode of urbanism to be more inclusive and people-friendly and so on. But when you look around the Middle East, it seems that it is a continuation of business as usual, that not really much has changed. And I think the biggest challenge really is the continuation and uh, perpetuation of social inequality. And uh, many of the projects that are being implemented 
uh, and the urbanization, uh, urban developments that are taking place seem to exacerbate these conditions and turning city centers into exclusive zones. Uh, I, I can see that in Cairo, for example, where the city center is now being reconfigured and recast to cater to uh, high-end developments and to uh, outside investors at the expense of the city's uh, low-income and marginalized population. And it is a trend that, that keeps continuing and that we see elsewhere. And I think that's really, uh, I think, the, 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 the real challenge uh, that we are facing. There are efforts taking place to resist that, and we see that among younger generations, younger architects, younger urban designers, and perhaps we can see some uh, uh, ray of hope in that. Well, it's nice of you to also add in some potential hope. I mean, what I'm seeing is that that problem with inequality and inequality reflected in the urban planning is is absolutely a global problem. It's getting worse all over the world. And we see planning laws here in the UK trying to deal with that, but not doing very well, um, trying to put in social housing in high-end developments, but people are finding all sorts of ways to get out of those responsibilities. Um, but another thing that we're all facing all over the world is something Mona already touched on, which is, of course, climate change. Um, and we are all beginning to face up to this, but it's the Gulf that's going to be particularly hard hit. And some climate change scientists have even predicted that Kuwait is going to become too hot for humans to live in by 2050. Um, so, yes, sir, your expertise is the Gulf. How do you think, with all their money, how do you think Gulf cities are going to adapt to climate change? Yes, that's that's a really great point. And uh, I have in, in, in some of my previous work described it as a process of greenwashing. When you look at mm -hmm. some of what takes place in the Gulf, they are adopting right now the right rhetoric when it comes to sustainability and to uh, have uh, projects and developments that are that take into account climate change and so on. But when you look at the actual uh, policies that are being implemented on the ground, you see that it, it pretty much counteracts any notion of uh, green urbanity or sustainability, which they are uh, promoting. Um, just, just as an example, when you look at the housing policy, for, for instance, in, in a place like the UAE, um, each resident, each citizen, um, uh, it's sort of a right uh, for them, for the state to provide them with housing, with uh, 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 a generous size of land, which eventually leads to urban sprawl, uh, and that uh, in, in itself necessitates and uh, expands uh, in, in infrastructure and uh, reliance on uh, car movement and so on. So uh, the actual policies that are being implemented on the ground uh, counteract any notions of uh, sustainability which they claim to uh, respect. So I think that's that's a, a real issue. And as you rightly note, there are many studies that, that have shown that the entire Gulf region uh, will by 2050 become uninhabitable because of climate change. It will be simply too hot. And uh, it seems to me when, when you look at the actual policies and projects that are being implemented that not much is being done at the moment to really change that. Mm. 
Well, it's a big problem to have to face, I suppose. Um, now, I'd really like to finish on considering this, this idea of reclaiming the streets. And a lot of the Arab Spring protests that we saw were very much rooted in the in the city. You know, Tahrir Square is probably the most famous example. But um, protests ever since um, that, that broke out in 2011 have, have very much been rooted to reclaiming public spaces. And that's been very important in this in this past decade or two in, in Beirut, hasn't it, Mona? How, how do you see the connection between city and protest in Lebanon? Definitely very tight and very inspiring, actually. Uh, when we were discussing the possibility of reclaiming the urban, and it's a nice way of coming back full circle towards Solidaire and the reconstruction of Beirut's historic core. Uh, Beirut's downtown in 2019, when the very large protest erupted, was empty, mostly parking lots, and very rarely used. And over the course of two or three months, we saw huge areas of the historic cores being actually activated, turned back to life. People invaded abandoned theaters, public buildings, and they held performances. People transformed the parking areas into uh, public psychiatric clinics for free, soup kitchens, and uh, a lot of public debate platforms in which discussions were being held continuously. And what that did is it actually performed the possibility of a different collective. And for me, this was incredibly important because this was Beirut, but this was also a lot of cities in, in Lebanon, but also beyond when we look at the documentation of what happened in Tahrir, of course, and elsewhere. So that performance of a collective is a gradual exercise towards the building of a different political uh, imaginary. And I think it's incredibly important. So although uh, today we are battered by an incredibly harsh financial meltdown uh, and uh, complete dismantlement of uh, what you would imagine to be the structures of a modern nation state. I am very hopeful that what we saw in 2019 in Lebanon, but also what we saw from the Arab Spring across the Arab world is a true desire for a different way of being together and that's specialized in these public spaces. So the protests will not overnight change the work of uh, dictatorships because that's who runs us uh, for many years. But what, it, what they do is they gradually build the political imaginary for an alternative and they do that work. And I think that work is being accelerated actually by climate change and by all sorts of other forces that are making the business as usual simply impossible. Two years ago, it would have been impossible to talk in Lebanon about solar energy, for example, with the lifting of the subsidies for oil, simply because the government is, is bankrupt, not because it wanted to. Today, more and more people are looking into lower consumption, solar panels, etc. So I think we are shifting towards something which is brewing, which is better, which is inscribed in a different urbanity. But that, that takes a lot of time and it's messy and risky, but still possible. <laughs> it's, it's great to hear that. Yasser, do you have any other examples of reclaiming the space and forming a collective using urban space in the Middle East or in the Gulf? Uh, I wish that, uh, I mean, I, I could provide you with examples, but it seems to me, uh, for for instance, uh, Cairo, Tahrir Square, the, 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 that you mentioned, uh, there there has been for a very short 
period of time during the events of the Arab Spring, there was real hope that uh, the people of Cairo uh, can can finally claim uh, those uh, public spaces as their own and to appropriate them. But since then, what happened was a complete reversal. Uh, Tahrir Square has been replanned and uh, has been re- designed now in a way that really prohibits any formation of protests or people coming together. And uh, the government, the authorities in, in Egypt are now busy building a new administrative capital away from Cairo, where the government can sort of uh, protect itself from its, its people. Uh, it's a place that is highly controlled uh, and so on. And certainly in the Gulf, uh, the continuation of the erasure of any sort of uh, substantive public realm continues unabated. So it's unfortunate. But there are these these glimmers of hope. Uh, 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 some of the things Mona mentioned in Beirut, for example, um, or uh, perhaps in, in Tunisia, uh, or even in Algiers, in Algeria, where people are coming out and uh, trying to reclaim part of uh, the, uh, the, the city as, as their own. So these glimmers of hope are there. But when you look at the broader tendency, uh, I'm not so sure that uh, this will be long lasting. And well, even but... like Tunisia, which was really sort of the, the uh, poster child for uh, this, this uh, emancipation that happened, we are now seeing developments where there is sort of a coup that has taken place. And uh, it may uh, 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 result in, in a return to, to some of the oppressive policies that uh, were uh, removed for a while. Well, yes, the challenges are legion, but it is nice to have a glimmer of hope or two. So we'll all watch uh, these protest movements and how they develop and how the cities themselves develop, hopefully away from inequality and towards a greater inclusion. Thank you both so much for a fascinating discussion. Our guests are on Twitter at Mona underscore Fawaz and at Yasser09. You can also visit Yasser's blog at dubization.com and read his recent book, Riyadh, Transforming a Desert City, which is published by Routledge. This week's podcast was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Lydia Wilson. You can subscribe to the New Lines magazine podcast on your favourite podcast app. And of course, you can find more of the best stories from the Middle East and beyond on our website, newlinesmag.com. Thank you all for joining us.